Okay, we're coming to you uh, not live from an undisclosed location to talk about Mark the 6th chapter today. We're working through Mark's gospel. Are you ready to talk about chapter 6? Yeah, I was born ready. There's a lot in chapter 6. This is, the, I think, the lengthiest of the chapters, at least, that we've studied thus far, so we better get with it. Uh, these first, like the first half of the chapter, the first... 29 verses, if we're trying to kind of talk about themes and things like that, these first 29 verses, I think, are all about rejection. We get kind of three different episodes of of people being rejected, and um, we'll talk about the significance of all that here in just a second. So let's just read Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He, that's Jesus, went away from there, and he came to his hometown, that of course would be Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Alright, so if there's some rejection going on here, then certainly it's Jesus is the one being rejected here in these first few verses of Mark chapter 6. He's come back to his hometown, and he does not receive, uh, you know, the hero's welcome. Uh, He instead is greeted with skepticism. He is greeted with doubt. Uh, He's greeted with just flat out, the text says, unbelief. Um, It is interesting to note that that the people are amazed at his preaching. The the, the text says that. They were astonished at it. But that amazement and that, you know, awe... It does not lead to faith, which is where this teaching is designed to lead people to. And the things that they say there in verse 2 and 3, these questions that they ask, I actually think these are kind of like, these are faithless questions. These are doubting questions. This is, if we were to just kind of phrase it another way, they're asking, you know, hey, how could a hometown Nazareth boy, how could he have this knowledge? You know, that's that's just not possible. They're astounded, but... Almost not in a good way. And and this is more, I, I'm always inclined to read this and say, well, it's it's an issue of familiarity breeds contempt because Jesus is a hometown guy. But this is, this is more than that. Uh, the mentality of the ancients in that time was that your geography and your, uh, you know, your, your heredity, you know, where, where you come from, who your parents were, that determined who and what you were going to be. Right. That put a cap or that put a limit on what your abilities and what your accomplishments could be. And so they thought, oh, it's not possible for a Nazareth guy to be coming along and saying anything you know, that's truly profound and has any real substance to it. And so there's this unbelief that's working here. Right. And this could, on our journey so far, I mean, we've seen Jesus just, you know, absolutely widening everybody's eyes, you know, uh, drawing great crowds to him, and that's like uh, kind of a hoorah, like yes, kind of feeling of this like triumphal procession of Jesus following him everywhere. And then we kind of get to here, he comes to his hometown and he gets rejected. And it's like, should we be discouraged? I don't think that's the case because this is prophesied that he would be the, the stone that the builder builders refused. That's so, exactly right. That's exactly right. It's it's unfortunate, and, you know, if if this was the first, you know, kind of moment where there's kind of some some rejection from people that maybe you would not expect, um, Jesus knew that was coming. Right. He knew this was going to be part of his his journey here upon this earth. I'm sure there were plenty of others, too, that that were rejecting him along the way, but this is his hometown. This is pretty significant. Yeah, like I said, this this maybe would be not as expected. You know, yes, you can expect some rejection from the... You know the religious elite, but you know here's people. You know these are people you they would have recognized you. You know and you would have recognized them. You grew up on the same street as them. You played with, you know the the, the kids of these people growing up as a boy, and um, it's just not the reaction that uh, one would expect. And and the sad thing is, is this does repeat itself 
lots of times even today uh, where, you know, people have the most difficult time being able to talk about spiritual matters with the people that are the closest to them, you know, with family members. And uh, it's almost it almost is incumbent for somebody else to be able to come in and be able to sow the seed and have any kind of effectiveness in their lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had questions asked to me, like by my own family members, you know, older family members. I'm sitting down and trying to study the Bible with them. And, you know, I'll be like trying to explain a concept. I, I try not to be too teachy or preachy, but, you know, I'll be trying to like say, draw a point out of a verse and they're like, what can I learn from you? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost the same like lines as the, the people here in Nazareth are saying, like, aren't, aren't you the, aren't you the, the carpenter, the son of Mary? And then, you know, all that stuff, like, you're, you're just where you fit in this demographic. That's yes. all you are. Yes. Um, and they, they aren't able to see past the, the flesh that Jesus is wrapped in and see that, that he's the word. Mm-hmm. And that's the same when we're studying with, uh, folks who just kind of, they, they go, oh, well, that's just that preacher from the, the Lakeside Church of Christ, you know, Josh McKibben, Kane Atkinson, he's, you're just this, you're just that. Well, no, I want people to look past me. I want them to see Christ. I want them to see the Father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about this verse here. You, I know you had a question about it. Let's talk about verse 5. Let's do it. Where it says that he could do no mighty work there. Now, what's your struggle with that verse? Well, it's not necessarily a huge struggle. I kind of, I think I have a good understanding of it, but I don't know how tight my grasp is. Obviously, uh, if we're going to be consistent with the narrative of Scripture, that doesn't mean that he literally cannot do. I mean, he could snap his fingers and the whole world could be healed uh, if he wanted to. Um, and we know it can't mean he could not, because literally the next phrase in the verse says he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Yeah, but my my kind of understanding of where I'm at is Jesus usually is healing people. For the purpose of instilling faith. And since Jesus can easily read people's heart, we saw him do that with the Pharisees and Sadducees so far, uh, he can just tell that the miracles wouldn't serve their purpose here. Yes. That's what I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at Matthew's account, the parallel account to this story in Matthew thirteen fifty eight, Matthew words it differently. Matthew says he did not do many mighty works. And and, and that is the case here. That, that Jesus, when it says he, he could do none... Um, it just speaks to the fact that he chose not to. I, I, I think about other passages in the Bible that use that same kind of language of could not or cannot. Luke fourteen twenty, Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet. And one of the excuses that the men gives was, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come to the banquet. All right. Is it true that he could not come? He could. He could. It's just that he chose not to come. Uh-huh. And, I, and and that's the same kind of idea here when it says that Jesus could do no mighty works. He could have, but it would have defeated the purpose uh, of, of what the miracles were supposed to be all about. He, he couldn't do it within reason. It wouldn't be reasonable for him to do it just because the, 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 he had a certain mission and a certain purpose, and it just it wouldn't make logical sense for him to be doing these things. Yes, today. yes. And these people... Here, the rejection of him is almost kind of of a whole different order. Because notice there in verse 6 that it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. There's only two different times in the whole New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled at something. Uh, This is one of them where he marvels at just such incredible unbelief. And then there's the story in Matthew chapter 8 about the centurion with his faith, and Jesus marveled at what a great faith that he had. Uh, so we got kind of here the two extremes. Uh, but Jesus sees here, perceives a type of unbelief that is just so hard that for him to continue to do miracles here and to kind of go above and beyond, to almost try to like to, to, to win their faith, uh, it was actually going to do a disservice. Um, John chapter 12, actually it's just worth reading. Would you look at John 12? 37 through 40, uh, this is what can happen. And I think Jesus' reluctance to do many mighty works in Nazareth in the face of this kind of stubbornness, I actually think it was an act of benevolence for Jesus to not uh, do more miracles. Because sustained rejection of the evidence, it just hardens people's hearts all the more. John chapter 12, verse 37, here's an occasion that's similar. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe 
For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Um, this is just a, 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 a this the story here in Mark is just another occasion of what Isaiah had prophesied about that like you, you're, you're not doing any good. I mean, it's just going to cause people people that are determined not to believe. You're just you're just throwing your pearls before swine at that point. Right, and this this is again why in the Old Testament I think uh, again G- Jesus perfect reflection of the Father. Why in the Old Testament sometimes the Lord did not deliver his people mm-hmm. he just let them deal with their their own stuff if they wanted to do it on their own he said okay yeah deal with it on your own yeah and uh it almost well actually no it just never ends well when they did that yeah yeah uh interestingly this verse here in mark 6 verse 5 um about that uh he could do no mighty works there because of the unbelief of the people this is a favorite verse of lots of modern day quote unquote faith healers uh, to explain when they come, maybe they bring a big tent revival to an area or, you know, Benny Hinn comes to town or whatever it might be. And, yes. you know, somebody kind of calls them out on the carpet and say, hey, you waved your hands over me and uh, uh, I'm not healed, I'm not better. Yeah. And they will use this verse to say, oh, well, I, some people just don't have enough faith. That's the problem here. You don't have enough faith and that's the reason that uh, the healing can't be performed. And that was the second dimension to my question about this. Yeah, yeah, and, G- and and that's not the case here with Jesus. Jesus is not like he's being hindered by these people. It's like, oh, I'm trying to put this miracle on them, but their absence of faith is pushing back so much more powerfully. No, Jesus purposely chose to limit his demonstrations of uh, miraculous power here. And like I said, I actually think he's doing these people uh, a favor by not doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's that that would mean that unbelief is stronger than Christ. Yes. If that's the case. Yes. And, and that's not true. And that's not the biblical narrative at yeah. all. So yeah, the the that doesn't fly with the faith the faith healing deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus, there's uh, other places we see where people had the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and their 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 faith healing was based on their faith. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's worth pointing out again, Jesus didn't leave these people entirely without evidence of his divinity because verse 5 does say that he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Maybe that was, maybe he was just persuaded by, you know, his compassion for, for, for some people um, to do that or he just wanted to at least leave a little bit. Um, you know, that way it couldn't be said that he, you know, well, he just doesn't have the power. No, uh, it, clearly he did. Um but there comes a point where he just decides, I'm going to have to kind of wipe my hands, kind of kick off the dust of my shoes, and I'm going to going to move on somewhere else. Um, and not coincidentally, that is something that gets talked about here in the next section when he's commissioning his 12 apostles. This is what is sometimes referred to as the limited commission. Uh, if you look at the uh, kind of the, 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 the parallel accounts, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, uh, what made it limited was that the apostles are told not to go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans yet, but I do want you to go and do some teaching uh, to, to the Jews, to the, to the household of Israel. So verse 7, he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them to take nothing for their journeys except a staff, to bring no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, well, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they, the apostles, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now... All right, let's talk about the important parts of the verse. What's going on with this tunics, man? What's the deal with all that? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, okay. I did actually kind of, I, I did consult some other translations on the two tunics. It's just, it's just he's just talking about don't bring an extra change of clothes. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, which, let's just talk about that. You know, so Jesus sends, sends the 12 out uh, in pairs. Uh, we don't know all of the, the pairings there, how all that worked. Uh, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say Peter and Andrew went together, their brothers. James and John went together, their brothers, and um, some of the other pairings uh, would be certainly left to some interpretation. Who got stuck with Judas Iscariot? Yeah, though. that's the that's the big 
the big question. They're, like they're just there and they're like, all right, let's do this, Judas. And he's just like, yes, <laughs> yeah. let's go out and spread the word. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> you that's, know? That's, a, that's a diabolical uh, image that I don't want in my mind right now. Can I switch someone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we yeah. trade? Uh, but there's, there's, there's great wisdom in the idea here of sending out uh, sending them out two by two. Yes. Um, there's going to be support. Instead of being alone, you're going to have the support of another brother. There's the, just the encouragement you get from one another. And especially amid the, the kind of trials and opposition and rejection that Jesus warns, it is going to happen. You know, you're going to go to some places and you're going to have some success and people are going to be receptive, but... You're also going to go places and you're going to be rejected and that's going to be hard and here's how you need to deal with that. But that's easier to bear when you've got like a brother to lean upon Absolutely. and you're able to share in that, that suffering. Um, but I think about just the, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes where it talks about two are better than one. And Jesus is practicing that wisdom here with the apostles very early on. And that continues even on, uh, even after Jesus ascends back into heaven. We see, you know, these pairs and sometimes even bigger groups of, of uh, disciples working together. You know, Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Timothy, you know, on down the line. Yeah. You remember Brother uh, Raymond Castillo uh, just, just the other night? He said, it's lonely up here. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can be. Yeah. We, we need each like... other. And especially when you're trying to do the. Uh, the evangelistic work that God has has entrusted, not just for preachers to do, but for all Christians uh, right. to do. Uh, th- 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 those points there in verses eight and nine about you know don't take all these extra things for your journey, don't take a, any bread or a bag or money in your belts, but instead just a just a staff and sandals and just you know a single change of clothes. Yeah, I think just what he's emphasizing there is emphasizing trust in God that God is going to provide. It, he's he is teaching them. In a different way, the principle of Matthew six thirty three, that if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these other things, all these physical necessities, they're going to be added to you. They're going right. to be taken care of, and the way that it's going to be added to you is through the the goodness and the hospitality of others. And that's what verse ten talks about about entering the house of someone who would receive you, and you stay there, and you know that means they're going to you know provide food for you and all the other uh, necessities. Uh, it's not that God's just going to like you know rain down clothes or food from the sky. Although he's not above doing that. He can do that. <laughs> the, um, the, the manna from the Old Testament. That's true. And actually, we'll even, I'll, I'll make a point about that here in, in just a minute or two. Okay. Um, but but the way he's going to do that, and the way he still does that today, is is generally through his people. He can do it in other ways. His providence is not you know limited to that way. But yes. many times he's going to work through his own people. Yeah, uh, people who care and, and fear the Lord. I've seen that countless, countless times. Oh yeah, yeah, and I have as well. Um, the, the opposite side of that is uh, verse eleven about all right. When there is rejection, what are you to do? Well, there was this kind of this ceremonial, customary action that you were to do, and it would have been a very. I don't, I don't think there's anything metaphorical about this. This was literally you were to when you all right you offered to. Talk to these people about about the gospel. Yeah, we're not interested in that. Don't care about that. We'd just like for you to leave. Okay, we're going to literally shake off the dust uh, that's on our feet, and we're going to do that really as a uh, as a strong word uh, against them. Um, it really served as a warning that said, "Hey, okay, we've done our due diligence. We've done our responsibility. We've tried everything that we can do. Now." It's all on you. It's like a societally polite way of saying, like, you you just passed up something very, very significant. Yes, yes. And we were trying to do you a kindness, and yeah. And, and people back then in that culture would have understood, oh, that's kind of a diss, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jews, uh, they had gotten accustomed to, if they had walked through, like, a Gentile territory, um, as they were leaving that territory or that town or that village, that's what they would do is they would shake off the dust of their feet because they considered the the land of a Gentile to be impure and unclean, and so we're shaking that off on you. And so there's that negative connotation to it yeah. to where, you know, now when Jesus kind of adopts this, it's going to kind of take a different meaning. It's not about, you know, a, a Gentile thing, um, but it is sending a message to say, hey, you, you, you I mean, you, you forfeited something really good here, yeah. and that's on you. Um, I want to point out verse 12. That the apostles, all right, they're they're going out and they're doing some proclaiming. Well, what are they proclaiming? Well, what they're proclaiming 
is the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. You remember chapter 1, verse 4? Oh, yes. And it is also the same exact message that Jesus preached, chapter 1, verse 15. And it is the message of repentance. And it is no surprise then, if you're going to preach repentance, it's no surprise then that you're going to get some rejection from time to time. Yes. And that's true back then, and that's true even today. Because of the message of repentance, let's just be honest, it's hard. Oh, yeah. It is arguably the hardest of all the commands, you know, in, in the New Testament. And many people, sometimes even we as Christians, we don't want to hear it. And we sure don't want to do it. Yeah. But even just hearing it and thinking about it, that's tough enough. And so there's going to be people, Jesus says, that's going to push you away because of that. Um, but don't be deterred. You've got a mission to do. Keep on carrying on. Uh, and they do. Verse 13, cast yeah. out many demons, anointed people with oil who were sick and healed them, etc., etc. So here's uh, maybe the first mention of Jesus imparting some of these spiritual gifts uh, to the apostles uh, to some degree. Yeah. Um, it says he gave them authority. Yes, gives them the authority to, to do these things. Um, and that's important, especially if you're talking to somebody that is a, a believer in modern-day spiritual gifts. Okay, well, where'd you get that from, pal? Yeah. I mean, you can read the Bible about how people got that. By what authority? By what authority? It's mm-hmm. a good question. Um, all right, then this third episode here of some rejection is the story of John the Baptist. Right. And... Um, I've, I've, I've read this story many times throughout my life, known it, um, but there was something about reading it again for today that just kind of, I don't know, caused it to resonate even more with me, just what a what a boss John the Baptist is. Oh, yes. Um, so let's read. Verse 14. King Herod, he heard of it. That is, he's hearing of all the, the, the great things and great works that are being done. Uh by Jesus and, and probably even through through his apostles, um, when he heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, some had said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah, and still even others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, he's been raised. And then what happens beginning in verse 17 is really kind of like, this is Mark's way of kind of telling kind of a flashback sequence. You know, so here's kind of the... And we're going to kind of have the dream where we're going back in time. We don't know exactly... I don't, I don't know the exact timeline of you know how much time had passed between these events we're going to read about and the time that Herod starts to hear of Jesus' name. Uh, but we get the retelling of uh, the death and the ending uh, of John the Baptist. Mark didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about John at the introduction of his gospel. Yeah. Um, but he is a, a a mighty warrior for God. And and this story, even if Mark didn't tell us anything else, this one story would be more than enough to tell us John the Baptist was was the man for a while. Yeah. Actually, this is going to loop back around to talking about the repentance from earlier. Cause yes. John was pretty big on repentance. Yes. Uh, so let's just read it. Uh, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And so she went out, and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. almost seems like you know, she didn't even hesitate. I want the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25. This whole time. Yes. Yeah. Verse 25, And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison 
and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Oh, what a what, what a what a sweet little gift there. Oh. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took John's body and laid it in a tomb. Now, let's just uh, make some observations from all of that. Before we get into the meat of it, yeah. it's a little tangential, uh, but uh, Herod... This is this is why you shouldn't make oaths uh, if mm-hmm. if you're not really careful about it. Yeah, uh, and that's some of Jesus's other teaching. I, it's not got a whole lot to do with the narrative, um, but it's just a uh, you, you put yourself in some really compromising yeah. positions. Like he this. ends up regretting it. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and then and this is one of and then if you want to think about the Old Testament counterpart, read the Book of Judges, Judges, and read about Jephthah's uh, just rash, stupid oath, or read about King Saul's rash, stupid oath. Um, because you end up getting yourself into some some real you know precarious situations, and Herod is a good New Testament example of that. This Herod, might, we might want to just point out, this is Herod Antipas. This is one of the the three sons of Herod the Great. Uh, he's identified elsewhere as Herod the Tetrarch, uh, just so we kind of keep him together with the other mentions of him in in other places in the New Testament. Um, and it seems like him and John have you know kind of a you know, maybe a little bit of a love-hate relationship. Um, maybe that's not the best way maybe, to say it. Maybe even some rapport. Yeah, some rapport. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, I, I saw a documentary a while back of it was about these two political commentators. One was a Republican and one was a Democrat, and they had this long history of engaging in debates and so forth, and the title of the documentary was The Best of Enemies. Yeah. And they had this, uh, although they disagreed fiercely on things, they still had great admiration and respect for one another. Mm-hmm. And Herod has that for John. I don't know that necessarily John has a lot of respect for Herod necessarily, his his lifestyle and so forth. Um, but um, verse 20 does say that Herod feared John. And the word feared there is the word uh, for respect. Yeah. Keep talking. Maybe it's just running. It's on. Uh, we're on the 27-minute mark. All right. It just probably means it's about to die. Okay, what do you want to do? We'll just keep talking. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the only batteries we got. All right. Um, so since he has this respect for John, he's he's willing to kind of you know entertain him on occasion and will give him an audience to you know to, to listen to the things that he says. Um, yeah. Let me just say here that I think the rapport that John has with Herod, this ought to be like the bare minimum reaction that we elicit from others that we're trying to talk to about about spiritual things and about the gospel. That even though they, we, they may not agree with us, at bare minimum, we want them to go away from that conversation saying, you know what, I didn't agree with that guy, but I respected him. Yes, and I, and I'd like to hear him again. That's what it says. It says that Herod heard him gladly. You know, I'm I'm ready to hear that guy again. You know, I, I like talking to him. It gives me some stuff to think about. Um, yeah, that ought to be the bare minimum that we're shooting for. Um, it's worth saying, verse eighteen. I think this is a good place to point this out. That contrary to popular belief, there is such a thing as an unlawful marriage. Right. That's what John is confronting Herod about. Hey, buddy. You ain't got no right being married to this woman. It was hard then, yeah. and it's hard now to talk about. Yeah, marriage and divorce and, and, and remarriage, those are prickly situations, but it's true. God has some legislation about that. And just because you know the civil law may sanction a marriage, that does not automatically mean that God sanctions it and God you know, blesses that marriage. And this particular marriage here that Herod was involved in, John's saying, God doesn't honor what you're doing. Right, and I think I think we can see sometimes the hearts of individuals exposed. Like, uh, you know, you'll you'll be talking to them about a uh, a marriage situation, and you'll be like, "Well, this isn't God's law for you to be in this situation." And their response is, uh, "Well, I love them anyway." Well, what are you doing? You you're loving them right to hell at yeah. that point when you realize that. You know, that at that point, that's lust, is what yes. that is. Yes. And, well, <laughs> speaking of lust, uh, verse twenty two. When Herodias has her daughter come in and dance, uh, this is not, I'm, I'm pretty certain this is not like 
you know, square dancing or, yeah. you know. It says it please. Something that's maybe a little bit more tame. Yeah, this is, I think the suggestion here is that this is lewd, lascivious, licentious dancing, all those old terms that I remember hearing old preachers uh, talk about and just doesn't get said nearly enough anymore. It's designed to please Herod and the other male guests there and to uh, incite them uh, sexually. And it, it's a pretty good plot because it then encourages Herod to, you know, to want to, to return the favor, so to speak, right. and offer some kind of a... a, a a privilege or a wish. Hey, I'll give you a wish to to, to grant, and um, and the wish is uh, well from Herodias to her through her daughter is that John's going to be beheaded, and uh, and that's what ends up happening. And um, it, it, again, as we noted a second ago, Herod regrets it, but he made a stupid oath. And um, it, maybe we should also just take from this: do not ever discount the influence of a wicked woman. Oh yeah. You know, and that's, I'm not saying that to try to be sexist, because it could be, it'd be true of a man too. Yeah. But over and over again, the scripture does talk about, you know, the wicked woman. You think about the Proverbs seven woman, who's, you know, off in the streets, and the young man, and he's just so foolish that he like he he succumbs to her her wiles. Right. Well, Satan twists the things that like God designed us with, you know, complementary roles. Like, mm-hmm. you know, men men are usually really good leaders. Women have that subtlety to them. And, you know, men, I mean, have been corrupted over and over again into being, like, tyrannical dictators and et cetera. What we see more, more often from women is, like, subterfuge, like, you know, mm-hmm. we've, the poisoning the drink, things like that. You know, that, that, that's statistically how, how women murder more and, and things like that. So uh, there's, there's different things that have to be on guard for depending on uh, who we're dealing with, I think. Not, not to say that one can't do the other kind of thing, but... Uh, yeah, we we see. Uh, the, the, I think the truth is, women are just a little bit more slick than us. They can be, and uh, John is on the receiving end of of this scorned woman, mm-hmm. um, and he loses his life. And um, it's a it's a sad end, but at the same time, it's also a uh, John is a martyr for you know for the for the for the early cause of the gospel. And um, and it's to his credit. And I look forward to one day being in heaven and getting to just talk to John the Baptist. And oh yeah, to like, you know, just hear about some of his because uh, this this is probably not the only rodeo that he had uh, during his time. So what's a locust taste like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do fun. want to point out verse twenty nine that when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Matthew 14, the corresponding passage, verse 12, adds at the end of that that they went and told Jesus. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, I'm pointing that out because this has to be probably the moment where Jesus is really starting to realize what it's all going to be about for him. Because this is really just kind of a shadow of the things that he's going to do. You know, we talk about John the Baptist as being the forerunner of Jesus uh, in, in a teaching capacity, but John is not just preparing the way for Jesus' teaching. John is also a forerunner in experiencing the things that Jesus is going to experience to some degree, and that is to be executed by civil authorities. Think about all the other comparisons as well. Pilate, later on, just like Herod, He's going to be reluctant. He's going to hesitate to execute Jesus, but eventually he's going to cave in. Uh, The chief priests later on, much like Herodias here, is going to scheme and practice and and, and pressure uh, to to, to wield influence to cause this to come to pass. Uh, The disciples, after the deed is done, they're going to come and bury Jesus, just like the disciples came and buried John uh, here in this tomb. And really, in many ways, this death sequence with John, it just kind of serves as an ominous warning uh, to Jesus about the fate that is you know, looming on the horizon from him. Really, from this point on especially, the cross is looming large in the background. Uh, and if Jesus... Well, and he, he knew all this was going to come. He, he knew these events. But, man, now it's getting real. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that's the first 29 verses, and that's all about uh, some rejection. John experiences great rejection here, and it causes him to lose his life. Um, that then transitions now to this last part of John chapter 6, 
where Jesus and the apostles, um, they, 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 uh, they come back together again, and we have this amazing record of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. This is one of the few miracles that is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. Uh, so let's just read it here. When you're a little kid, you learn this you know, Bible class, and it's amazing, and especially because uh, there's even uh, some things in here that I think little kids can especially latch on to. So verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That word desolate place there is just another word for wilderness, so maybe they're back in the wilderness again. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Actually, let's just pause right there for a second. I appreciate Jesus here because he, and this is one of several places, where he demonstrates by his words and by his actions the value of rest. Yes. I don't think that gets talked about or preached on enough. That, And I almost think there is, especially in our day and time, it's almost as if if you rest the physical body and your mind that that's almost considered a sign of weakness almost. You know, imagine every time, you know, people are standing in the foyer talking before or after church, oh, what have you been doing this week? And it's almost like a badge of honor for people to talk about, you know, how many zillion different activities they were involved in. And, you know, I, I did this and I ran here and did worked this many hours at the job and we ran and did this with the kids and we went to the ballpark and mowed the lawn and, you know, did a million different things. And that's 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 fine. Yeah. Uh, but then if you're the one who comes along and said, well, hey, what'd you do this afternoon? Oh, I, I went home and took a nap. Like, it's almost like there's shame whoa, in whoa, admitting whoa. that, you know? And Jesus again and again found time to retreat away from the crowds. And here in this instance, he's saying to the apostles, you all need to come with me. We're going to pull away for just a little while. Yeah. And we need to rest for a little while. And in fact, there was good reason for it. It says there in verse 31, they hadn't even had a chance to eat. Yeah, these guys were working yes. hard, like yeah. sacrificing a lot to, to do this. Um, but but in the end, I, I think if there's not times like this, like you said, to take some downtime and rest and contemplate, you know, what all have we really done? What's the significance mm-hmm. of this? And, and let it settle in and go deep into their souls and, 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 and think about this. And, and have some time to recover, well, then, you know, well, number one, you're, you're going to run yourself ragged. You're going to burn out. Yeah. Uh, number two, as, and that's happened to me before, it kind of it smothers your zeal a little bit if you try to go, 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 and you never yes. take time to rest. Um, but but secondly, too, like, those quiet moments are beautiful moments to just look inside yourself. Yes. If you don't take those moments, then you can end up losing sight of, why, well, why are we even doing all this stuff? You know, even if you're doing like stuff for the Lord, like the apostles were doing, you can get so caught up in the doing that you forget why you're even doing it. Right. And if we lose sight of the of our motivation that I'm that I'm that I'm being motivated here out of my love for God, and I stop and think about all the good things He's done for me and how He's blessed me, then then it just becomes you know kind of this just rote uh, mechanical obedience that. I'm not really sure that God is all that all that pleased with. I think that's what the Lord's Supper is for, to be honest. That's a big part of what the Lord's Supper is for. Yeah, yeah. and and I'm, I know, I mean, I think it's the totality of it, and I'll explain a little more. Like, you know, our whole worship service is pretty. You know, we're we're doing a lot of stuff. We're singing, even in our prayers. You know, we're, we're saying a lot, um, and in preaching, we're definitely saying a lot. Um, but in the Lord's we're Supper, we're very loquacious, and, <laughs> indeed. And in the Lord's Supper, though, it's this like quiet little clearing mm-hmm. in the woods where we all sit down and you know we we contemplate and we think and we consider what what we're doing what we're doing and and then God literally tells us why we're doing what we're doing during the Lord's Supper yeah. we're remembering Jesus and that's yeah. the whole reason for everything that's the the, the reason for everything we're doing and that shows the wisdom of God that even if at any other point during the week, I was not able to set aside that time for reflection and introspection God's going to give me at least those few minutes on Sunday. To do just that, that's, hopefully that'll help me, you know, fuel me for the next seven days. And that's another reason why you got to come to services. You need to be at church. That's exactly right for for the Lord's Supper. That's commanded. That's so so important. Yeah. Um, so uh, Jesus wants them to, to retreat and to uh, to take some rest. And so verse thirty two says they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now verse thirty three, many saw them going and recognized them. 
and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. So Jesus and the apostles can't even get to the, you know, the retreat spot before people have dashed to, to cut them off the pass. When he went ashore, verse 34, he saw a great crowd. And this is where I would expect Jesus to go, ah, these people again. Or maybe for Jesus to get just you know just angry and like you know can't we get five minutes to ourselves? That's what we we might do. That's what we would do, and that's exactly not the reaction because it says when he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them. This word compassion is the word to feel with, to be a with feeler. He felt for these people. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Uh, maybe another word that we might use for compassion, especially with the, the idea here of the sheep without a shepherd, is Jesus, he takes pity on what he sees uh, in these people. It's not just that they're they're hungry, and we are going to see that here in just a few minutes, but spiritually, they're hungry. That's the bigger issue. Um, and in many ways, we're going to see also in just a moment, verse 35 and 36, that Jesus' reaction toward the people is really the opposite reaction that the apostles had. The apostles seem to have the mind of like, you know, Hey, Jesus, can't we just kind of send these people away for a little while? Let them go get their own food. You know, we'll catch back up with them, you know, the next day. But that's not the reaction uh, that the Lord has. The Lord has compassion upon them um, as a shepherd uh, would for stray sheep. And these people, the idea here of the shepherd uh, is pretty significant because uh, very much... The, the Jews, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they had been without a shepherd for a long time. You read in the Old Testament, there's passages like Isaiah 34 where God you know, issues very stern rebukes of the people who should have been the spiritual leaders uh, in Israel. And for so long, they had not. They had allowed, you know, God says in Ezekiel 34, you know, my sheep. My sheep, you allowed them to be you know, ravaged by wolves and, and you, you left them alone on the high mountains and on the cliffs and you didn't, you didn't care for them. And Jesus, uh, of course, is, you know, John chapter 10, he's going to be the good shepherd. Um, he has the kind of heart and um, empathy for people that uh, is, is needed here and he's going to give them exactly what they need. Not just, it's not just that he's going to come to rescue people. He is. But furthermore, he's going to to lead them and feed them. You know, it's not just that I'm going to like save all these people. I'm going to even beyond the saving them, I'm going to provide them the daily things that they need. And that's one of the things Jesus does for us. Yeah, he saves us, but then it's not like okay, now you're left all on your own. No, right. he continues to guide and to uh, to 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 take us in the places that we go. Psalm 23, you know, and how all that uh, would would factor into these sorts of ideas. Um, this is the fulfillment of one of the prophecies in Isaiah 40 in verses 10 and 11 about how this is what the Messiah was going to come to do. Yeah, and uh, we got to take a page out of Jesus' book here when it comes to our leadership. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, they just kind of assumed that them just being there was just good enough. Um, or, or, or So they weren't leading or other, other people were leading people in the, the wrong direction. Uh, whenever we're learning uh, from Jesus uh, to, to, to be servants, really, um, it's it's a matter of we're, we're not just going to get these people to do what we want them to do, but we're going to stick with them even when they don't. And and, and that's that, that's what Christ did and, and who He is. Yes, and that's what that you know if you're talking about a shepherd in a local church or Jesus as the good shepherd, it is servant leadership, and yes. and that's what it's all about. And He's He's come to do that for them, and so that's why he takes the time to teach them, even though when the apostles would, would probably rather not. So verse 35 says that when it grew late, the disciples came to him and they said, you know, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. <laughs> And they then said to him, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, this would have been, I mean, the apostles are just thinking of this in very practical terms. Can you blame them? No, I mean, this 200 denarii, this is not chump change. This is a denarii was a day's wage. And so for 200 denarii, we're talking eight, nine, ten months worth of wages. You mm -hmm. know, it's... 
may almost be you know unconscionable for us to even think about. I'm going to give that much of my earnings, eight or nine or ten months of my livelihood to feed a, a you know big old group of people I don't even know. Um, and on top of that, you know, the disciples probably didn't even have this money. Jesus had already sent them out. You know, told them don't take any money in your in your bags, uh, and so to them it just this isn't even realistic what you're suggesting here. They've kind of begun the begun the naysaying process of like, whoa, let's think about here. How could this not work? And they're trying to to, to you know, it's it's coming from a sense of like they really want to know like. Is this even possible? But there's definitely a hint of doubt in what they're saying. Yes, and and again, they're looking at things purely through physical eyes. And humans could not really accomplish this thing that Jesus. That's is right. Yeah. That's right. Um, but with God, all things are possible. So, verse thirty-eight, Jesus said to them, "How many loaves do you have? Go and see." So, hey, why don't you check it out and let's see what we got to work with, and then I'll tell you what's going to happen next. <laughs> and so, when they had found out, they said, "We've got five loaves and two fish." Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. I like just the kind of the orderliness of Jesus's. This is kind of more of his, you know, leadership here being right. exercised. Which is what a good shepherd would do. A little delegation, exactly. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now, just a quick interjection here. I love the fact. That Jesus pauses before we're going to eat, we're going to pray, we're going to give thanks for that. You know, um, let's 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 take some cues from Jesus here. Let's not be dogs and just like go jumping into our food even when we're hungry. Like let's let's pause and reflect, even if it's just for a minute. Thank God and think about where that come from, and um, you know, follow the example of Christ here. I remember one time uh, I I asked you, I was like. So is it bound that we pray before we eat? It's kind of like early on when we were getting to know each other, and there I had like already bitten into some food or something. You you, you kind of said the same sentiment, like, "Hey, you know," uh, and you said, "Well, Jesus did it, Paul did it. Don't, don't we want to be like them?" And I think I think that's a good point. Uh, we we when we do that, we kind of. You know, I, sometimes I'm in like a really fleshly mind, like right before I'm about to eat, I'm hungry, I'm like, mm, yeah, I want to get this. Uh, but then if you pause to pray, it can change the entire like way that you look at the meal and the, the whole tone of the, the meal and even the conversations that take place over it. It's true. It kind of puts a, you know, it puts a, a, a spiritual um, covering over what we're going to do in a, in a physical sense. And um, yeah, I mean, you yeah. know. Jesus prayed. I mean, are, are we are we somehow do we think we're better than Jesus that you know we can just, just start chowing down on this luscious chicken casserole? I, I'm already spiritually minded enough. I know where this came yeah. from. You know? uh, the, the dog thing is what my dad used to always say. You know, when we were younger, if we had people over and they just start jumping into the food, and he's like, "Hey, you know, are, are you a dog?" And people would be like, "What?" And he's like, "Will you ever watch dogs? They just..." They don't give thanks before they eat. They just start eating. And like, you know, surely we're better than dogs. Uh, we can do better than that. So Jesus is setting just a, a good example. It's just worth noticing these kinds of little things. Right. So he gives the food to all the people. They eat. And then verse 42 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. And that uh, is significant, that no one had too much to eat, and no one went away with too little to eat. And this is to tie back to the thing about the manna in, uh, you know, back in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were in the wilderness. That's exactly what Exodus sixteen eighteen says. God sent the manna, and He sent exactly enough. He knew exactly what the people needed—not too much, not too little. Uh, gave them just enough for their uh, provisions and for their sustenance, and they were satisfied. And uh, that's what the Lord does for us today, physically, spiritually. Um, he gives us exactly what we need. Maybe not necessarily all that we want, but he does give us what we need to satisfy us. Verse 43, the result is they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. So here's, we started with very small amount, five loaves, two fish. I, I probably could eat most of that by myself. Yeah. Um, but now we're left with 12 baskets full uh, the the abundance afterward to just kind of show just the overflowedness of of God's goodness here, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men, and then Matthew adds besides women and children, so we may be talking about you know nine ten thousand people who knows, um, 
was just an amazing miracle uh, once again. Jesus kind of defying uh, the possibilities that the, the people would have had, and in this case, even what the apostles had in mind. Right, so this is a physical uh, miracle and a physical show. You know, we've seen Jesus heal physical ailments. We talked about how that has that spiritual application of him cleansing us. This is the same kind of thing. Uh, it, it can be applied to our spiritual lives and our uh, our work as Christians and in evangelism. Like, you know, the disciples were thinking, we don't have the means to do this. Like, the, and they were right. They didn't. Mm-hmm. But but they have, they were with Christ. Yeah. And so, you know, whenever you start wanting to talk about doing evangelistic type work and, and getting everybody mobilized and geared up for that and like a local work, you know, the, the naysaying process begins and it begins with like some doubtful questions and things like that. And I think, it, I, I just think we need to spin it a little bit more positive, learn from, from this miracle here and see that, you know, God's going to work with us and he's going to give the increase. And that, mm-hmm. that, that's what's happening here is that, that Christ showed them like, you guys look at what you have, and you're saying, mm, this, this, this just isn't going to work out. But if you just go and you just do what he says, it'll pay dividends. And that's what makes the difference. I mean, if it had just been the apostles with five loaves and two fishes and 5,000 people, yeah, none of this would have happened. Right. The intangible was Jesus was there. Yeah. They had Jesus with the them. The Christ. They had the Christ. They had the Messiah. And that's what makes the difference, whether you're talking about evangelism or any of the other things that God wants us to do and be involved in, and we start looking at it through, you know, uh, you know, jaded lenses. Right. Um, have we forgot who is with us right. and who's promised to be with us uh, every step of the way when we're operating in his name? And that's the, that's the root of the problem with any action that people are, you know, hesitant about, you know, visiting the sick and the afflicted can can we really make a difference in their lives can i really encourage the the lost and the drowning saint can i go can i go make a disciple out here in this community or make disciples out in this community can i convert this family member can we rescue this this lost sheep etc whatever it's going to be that's going to be hard i think the root problem in all of that is unbelief in christ and because it's christ that's with us that so we can we can do anything through him Philippians yeah. 4 13 yeah. And that's what that means, Philippians 4.13. Yes, and and actually it's, it's worth us making these points about how th- there is still imperfection in the faith of the apostles here. Right. And that is evident when we get to this next amazing event that happens. Mark is just like stacking up all the greatest hits here of, of Jesus because this is another one of them beginning in verse 45. So right. immediately he made his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Love that, just in, those interjections of that, that Jesus, all right, they've been involved in all this good collective working together um, in, a, in a, you know, a, a group fashion. We're doing the work of the Lord, but Jesus is still making time for personal devotion, uh, personal prayer. And, um, and I wonder how often, you know, I make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, we come to church on a Sunday, come here twice today, and we I mean, we prayed at least like, you know, eight or nine prayers today and had, you know, Bible class and two sermons. And, I mean, look, I've done a lot of studying and a lot of prayer. I ought to be good to go for another week, but no, 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 no. Look at Jesus here. Yeah, there was lots of praying together and teaching and studying together, but there's he's making time for him and the Lord personally, one-on-one, need time with the Father. And we need to, again, let's just follow Jesus' example here. You know, I don't even need, we don't even need a command in the Bible that says, Pray every day or study your Bible every day. We just watch Jesus. Like, we just, let's just follow his example, and that's more than enough. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, like you were saying before, do we think we're better than Jesus? Yeah. I mean, he is God, yeah. and yet he's still consulting and talking with the Father. And all the details of that communication, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be some, like, transcendental stuff happening there. I don't know. But regardless, we have to be involved in this so much much of the more like we have yes. to, like we need we need the father and uh we're actually lost Jesus never was exactly <laughs> if 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 he had need for the father sheesh how much more do do we let's uh, let's not think oh i'm I've, I've prayed. I've prayed out man so strong yeah i've burnt myself out on prayer you're not you're not so strong yeah yeah so verse 47 after that when evening came 
the boat with the apostles on it, was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, and I had to read about the the watches. This is one of the ways that the Romans kind of uh, determined time, especially for sailors and such. And the fourth watch would probably have been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So there's no telling at this point how long the apostles have been out there like struggling, you know, rowing the boat against the wind if they're still going at it this hard at 3 a.m., you know, in the morning. Um, Burning the midnight oil, so to speak. It's past midnight. (laughs) Um, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Now, let's just stop right there. That, That phrase interests me. That Jesus meant to pass by them. What, what do you think that means? I mean, there's, I, it's not totally clear. There's going to be some speculation there, but I mean, honestly, this might be a bit weird to say, but I think Jesus might have just been taking a walk. It could have been. I, I, I'll add a little bit more to that. That I wonder if this is like he wanted to pass by them, and and there would have been something about his his person. His his image and his appearance that like he wanted to give them a glimpse of like how great and awesome he was. There's a couple places in the Old Testament that talks about how God uh, passed by in order to reveal His glory to someone. Like Moses, Moses begged God, you know, let me see your face. Right. Well, of course, no man can see God and live. But all right, Moses, I, I, I'll give you a glimpse. And so he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by him. Exodus 33. Elijah gets the same thing in First Kings chapter nineteen. He passes by him to just give him a just a, a glimmer, a, a, a glimpse, a small sliver of his glory. And I, and I, I don't know. I, I tend to think maybe that's kind of what's going on here as well. That Jesus, yeah, he is going for a walk, but as he's going for that walk, he's just going to like kind of go right by them to where they'll just catch a glimpse of just how great he is. And I'm going to talk about this in my in my sermon on Sunday at the Transfiguration that. Um, the apostles would have gotten used to Jesus in a lot of ways, you yeah. know? You're with him day after day, all the time. And it gets to a point where, like, you just kind of get so familiar with the guy that you forget that he's the Son of God. Yeah. <laughs> that he is, you know, God in the flesh. And, like, he's so amazing and awesome. Yeah. And, and this could have been one of those reminders. Now, definitely when we get to chapter 9 and the Transfiguration, that's exactly what's going on. I'm going to show these guys some of my glory. You know, right. the three of them get the, the opportunity. And that's the thing. Like Jesus as a man was perfect, mm-hmm. and if you got to know him, I'm sure you'd love him. Yeah. You know, the message was what was offending people, but just as a guy, I I, I would imagine he was very, very you know likable, personable. But like you said, you know, you get used to that. Like, yeah, he's such a good guy. Yeah. But they they may forget, and they actually do forget, like with the loaves and the bread and everything. Again, this passage is going to reference that in a, in a, in a minute. Uh, they forget that he isn't just a great guy, a good Jew. He's yes. God. Yes. G O D capital God. Yes. And well, since you mentioned that, this about what they had forgotten, what they had still yet to figure out. Verse forty nine. So he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So they recognized the the sound of his voice, even if maybe his appearance threw them off, caused them to thought he was a ghost. But his voice was the calm, reassuring voice that they needed to hear. Uh, And just think about how many times either Jesus or God the Father in pages of Scripture says, Do not be afraid. Yeah. And over and over again, that's probably one of the most repeated phrases in all of, of Scripture. And why? Because it, you're lying to yourself if you say that you're not afraid. We're frail things. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I mean, you, every day we get in these cars that are going, you know, 3,000 uh, 3, pounds of metal down the road strapped to a couch. We're surrounded by other people all day, every day. We get mm-hmm. our feelings hurt. The uh, Every time you open a new day, yeah, it's a blessing, but it's a fearful thing. Yep. Anything can happen, and and that's why I think God just reminds us to not be afraid, because 
there, there's so much more that's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And not just not only does he just tell them, don't be afraid, he then takes a step further, 51. He then got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, a reference to the miracle that had just happened before this, but their hearts were hardened. Uh, one translation says their hearts were just too hard to take it in. And actually, I think that's what's going on. It's not like stubborn, rebellious hardness of heart. It's just, they, they, again, these are imperfect guys. Yeah. And their, their faith is still being developed and molded. And they just have a, they just still have a spiritual dullness about them. Um, and maybe what this episode shows us, and what verse 52 shows us especially, is that just being in the presence of Jesus, and maybe seeing his miracles, and even hearing him teach, that does not automatically produce deep faith. Now, it can initiate some faith, but that's not the same as having deep faith and having some, some roots. Think back to the, the parable of the sower. Yes. You know, what was the difference in some of those grounds? Well, there's some faith going on there, but not everybody had some, some deep faith. And so there's some spiritual dullness here uh, of, of maybe some of the, the, the spiritually significant things that Jesus is trying to convey about being the good shepherd or about being the bread of life. Uh, and you know what all that kind of stuff means. These, these guys are just not fully thinking yet uh, in the way that Jesus is trying to train them to think. Yeah. And we can be the same way. That's here's that's that's the kicker with all this. We can be the same way where we can become spiritually dulled. Right. Hebrews five eleven talks about that. You've become dull of hearing, and um, we got we got to work against that. Yeah. Well, we've got to we've got to put ourselves in the boat in this situation and I, I don't want to draw a whole bunch of you know over the top poetic uh, explanations of this event and, and make it into like a like a, a huge convoluted parable like some may but but there is something to be said of putting ourselves in the boat seeing Jesus walking on the water and wondering like where's your head at when you're seeing that mm-hmm. like we don't see those kinds of things today any longer but it's not just a story. Like, would if you saw that, would you believe that, yeah. or would you think I'm losing my mind? Is this even real? Can, are these miracles going to continue to become greater and greater? Like, is he really the Messiah? And I think that that's that's the process that's going on in their head, and that's what they're wrestling with. Is like, what, what is this? Is this for real right now? Yeah. Uh, can, can is it, this is an uh, still an unbelievable thing, even though you're seeing it with your eyes your heart and your spiritual eyes haven't even processed it fully. Yeah. And it's a lot, you know, the loaves and fishes miracle and then the walking on the water miracle, this is all in the same day. Yeah. And there's no telling whatever else had been going on earlier that day. Um, and it's like we've said before, it's almost like you know trying to drink water from a fire hydrant. It's just a lot at once maybe. And, yeah. um yeah, so I'm trying to be empathetic with them yeah. a little bit. Um, if you and I saw this, we'd be like sitting in the in the in the office, like rubbing our temples, like what? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so verse 53. Let's wrap it up. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, which is really just another name for the region of Galilee, and they moored to the shore. Uh, I'm I'm not really up on all my nautical terminology, but I'm going to guess that just means they kind of like you know anchored or yeah got 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 in where they needed to. And when they got out of the boat, the people there on that side, on the Galilee side, they immediately recognized him, and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So Jesus had been, earlier in this chapter, kind of just run out of Nazareth, out of his hometown. But here the people of Galilee, what it seems to say about them is they anticipated him. And that's to their credit, uh, that they recognized him. And that's kind of neat to think about. This is in the days before television and, and Internet and um, cameras. Uh, something about Jesus's just his character and his 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 notoriety, you know, caused them to recognize him, and um, and they were anticipating, looking forward. I mean, they, I guess they probably figured, okay, I remember when he got on the boat and he went to the other side. But what that means is that means he's got to come back. 
Right. And so, so we're kind of who knows how long they've been waiting there on the other side of the shore, waiting for him to come back because uh, they this group of people has a different kind of of approach and uh, attitude toward Jesus than he did at the beginning of chapter six. Right, and it's cool to kind of see that come full circle because that shows us the contrast of there. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be people who see Jesus and they take one look at him and they think they've got the whole narrative figured out, and then yeah. they're you know too smart for Jesus, or they 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 you know what what plug in whatever objection you have. Uh, but then at the end, we see people that we see uh, a shoreline of people who are hey, there he is, come on guys. And and that should encourage us mm-hmm. because th- that's that's the side that we're on that we're standing on, um, yep. and, and and it's a great place to be. <laughs> well, that's a lot. Chapter six was a was a doozy, and uh, next week we'll uh, pick up with chapter seven. Jesus is back at it with the Pharisees and some of those cats, and we'll see some of the conflicts there. Anything else on chapter 6 before we close? Yeah, I just, I just think you got to figure out which side of the shore you're on in this equation, um, and whether whether you're in the Nazareth area or if you're over here on the uh, Galilean zone where they're they're kind of waiting for Jesus to come back and, and, and analyze that and think about, you know, can we do these things? Yes, you can. All things through Christ. Yep. I love everybody. I was going to make sure if you still loved everybody. Yeah, oh, I still love everybody. All right, yeah. I, and I love them too. Oh, and wow. the Lord loves them. That's the most important thing. Oh, wow. All right. Awesome. Looking forward to Chapter 7 next week.